like if I look at Catholic social teaching, you know, and I look at the seven principles of that and like, I think being able to name like all humans have inherent dignity, you know, like to me, it's like, that is the Black Lives Matter movement. When I think Mm -hmm. about like preferential option for the poor and vulnerable, that is saying BIPOC, right? It's not just saying people of color, right? It's centering Black and Indigenous and then people of color. Like, I think that there's a lot of overlap, actually. And I think that there's, um, I also know that the church has done some harm, right? So you always have to wrestle with like histories of peoples and how do they impact today's narrative and how do they impact today's society? So I feel like it's a constant wrestling of what are we called to do? Like who were, who would Jesus be in present day and who would he be with? And it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have been here in Portland during the summer 2020 protests. Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of Reclaiming Social Justice, a podcast that seeks to read the signs of the times through the lens of Catholic social teaching and rediscover our call to work for a more loving society. My name is Danny and I'm the coordinator of social justice at St. Anthony Catholic Church in Tigard, Oregon and the host of the show. If you're a fan of the show, I hope that you subscribe wherever you like to get your podcasts. If you're a fellow St. Anthony parishioner, remember you can find this show at satiger.org forward slash reclaiming SJ. Wherever you choose to listen, you can expect new episodes on the last Wednesday of every month. You can hit me up with your comments, questions, and suggestions at reclaimingsj at gmail.com. You can also leave me your feedback by completing the short form linked at the bottom of the show notes. All right, so with that, let's look at what we got on deck for today's show. In this episode, we continue our mini-series focused on social justice work at local Catholic schools here in Portland, Oregon. Last episode, we spotlighted Melissa Lowry from Central Catholic. This episode features Amanda Montez. Amanda is the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Jesuit High School. The job that Melissa Lowry used to have, actually. Amanda recently graduated from the University of San Francisco in International and Multicultural Education. Her research centers alumni of Nativity Schools and how they transition to predominantly white high schools. As a biracial educator, she aims to create the classroom environment she wishes she could have had as a student and works to create systems of racial equity at work and research and as a co-author of Jesuit West Community Organizing for Racial Equity, or also known as CORE. All right, but before we get to hear my conversation with Amanda, let's jump to today's word of the day. This conversation I had with Amanda ties in perfectly, actually, with the terms I have spotlighted in the previous episodes. So I invite you to refer back to those to have a better understanding of what we mean when we're talking about organizing versus advocacy, as well as systems of injustice, or what the church would call structures of sin. For today's word of the day, I want to define a core practice used in community organizing, the one-on-one relational meeting. The one-on-one relational meeting is one way to foster what Pope Francis calls a culture of encounter. It is an intentional conversation where the goal is to surface issues and leaders who are willing to do something about those issues with others in the community. More importantly, however, it is one way to build or strengthen a relationship by practicing curiosity and deep listening. This practice is not just a recruitment tool. It is something deeply spiritual and sacred at its core. It is a way of entering into a process of communal discernment 
rather than isolated individual discernment. Done well, a one-on-one relational meeting becomes a vessel of the Holy Spirit to make known God's will for an individual and a community. So what kind of questions would you ask or hear in a typical one-on-one relational meeting? Well, here they are. Here's, here's a few sample questions. And, and pay attention. You'll note that these aren't just your um, small talk questions that you might hear or use in your day-to-day basis. What moves you? What brings you energy and meaning? What angers you or breaks your heart? What is important to you? What do you care about? What are you passionate about? What do you get excited about? What, brings, what, what wakes you up in the morning or what keeps you up at night? What's something you have always wanted to do but haven't yet? What's one step you think God's calling you to take right here, right now? In short, the one-on-one relational meeting is a mutual exchange of personal stories with the goal of bringing together their stories and moving toward shared action. That's today's word of the day, folks. I want to encourage all of you to reach out to someone and practice doing a one-on-one relational meeting. Then let me know how it goes. All right, so stay tuned because my conversation with Amanda Montes is up next. Enjoy. I'm, I'm here on Reclaiming Social Justice with uh, Amanda. How do you pronounce your last name? Montez? Yeah. And then I just got married. So I added a new one. So I'm okay. Amanda Montez Gobian. Gobian? Yeah. Okay, nice. Um, and so we are going to um, learn a little bit about her and, and her story as it relates to um, faith and social justice. Uh, she works at a, a Jesuit institution here in Oregon. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but also has a lot of experience working at other Jesuit schools and institutions across the nation. So I'm excited to dive into that as well. Um, but before that, um, Amanda, do you want to kick us off with a prayer? Yeah, um, I brought, I think this always grounds me and it's the prayer attributed to Oscar Romero. Um, so begin just, you know, sending yourselves and we'll begin. It begins now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom is not beyond our efforts. It is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need future development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it well. It may be incomplete, But it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Amen. Amen. Nice. Um, Is there a a favorite line of yours in that that prayer? I love um, 
we cannot do everything. And there's yeah. a liberation in realizing that. Yeah, <laughs> Feel yeah. very grounding to the work that I do in particular. Right. Yeah, that's kind of like a nice thing to tell yourself every single day, right, when you wake up. <laughs> yeah, I, I just like the idea of nothing we do is ever complete. Do some, do something. Just pick something and do it well. Exactly. You know? And I think that is so um, liberating when you think about uh, social justice, right? It's such a big thing. And then as, the more you immerse yourself in the the causes of social injustices, the more you can get overwhelmed. But when you think about this, like you just need to do something, right? Exactly. And let, let God do the rest. I love that. Yeah. Um, so awesome. Let's let's jump into your story, um, Amanda. And um, I'm just curious if you can share with us a little bit about kind of your up- upbringing um, and how you ended up in this in this world, right? This intersection of uh, of faith and social justice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really the spirit. <laughs> I would say that there's a lot of things in my life that have lined up throughout the years. And I really got introduced to a faith that does justice by going to a Jesuit high school. And, you know, in all, it it shouldn't have happened. I'm from Palm Springs and growing up, I went to a Catholic school, but there were no Catholic high schools in the area. There were some private schools and Christian schools, but a group of parents really decided like, we want to build a high school. Like, this is really what our community needs. and my mom was Catholic, like took us to church, but was never like, this is going to be like our lifestyle for the rest of our lives. And I was a swimmer. I was like going to go to the big public high school. And my mom is a real estate agent. She does commercial real estate. And she was brought in with this group of parents to help find the land. She was like, I'm just going to help find the land. This is not going to be anything, you know, this is just a side project for now. And the Jesuits ended up sponsoring the school. And there still are no Jesuits on it this day. So it's always been run by lay people, a lot of people who were really mission driven. And I ended up going to high school there. I was in the second graduating class, which was a really beautiful experience because, I mean, at the time, there were probably about 120 students on campus, just freshmen and sophomores, and really being able to like create the traditions and, you know, what is homecoming? Who does prom? Like, you know, a lot of us would start water polo teams or basketball teams, like where they just hadn't existed before. And it was like, there was no, you know, it's so funny being at Jesuit high school now where it's, it's more common than not that students are bringing home state championships. And I come from a Jesuit high school where it's like, we were so happy if we scored more points. (laughs) And we knew we were losing every one of them. So, um, I really learned a lot about faith that that does justice there at Xavier College Prep in Palm Desert. And I had really wonderful young teachers who were really animated about a life that lent itself to a lens of social justice. So, you know, at 16 years old, I was going out to East Los Angeles and spending time at Homeboy Industries, Mm. which is the largest gang rehabilitation center in the U.S. And it was founded by one of the Jesuits who saw... um, a huge need during the 80s and 90s in the rise of gang violence. And and my family is originally from L.A. when L.A. was Mexico and the border mm-hmm. crossed us um, mm-hmm. is the way that I like to to explain it to folks. And, mm-hmm. so, you know, I think being 16 and being around folks that you could tell like that this was really moving work, um, being able to go there, being able to learn about El Salvador and the war and the atrocities that happened um there and there are uh I won't get into the whole history of of Salvadoran history but essentially when we think to Oscar Romero 
there were also Jesuits at the time who were murdered and they were murdered by people who had been trained in the U.S. Um, so being so seven, you, you were learning about this at, at Homeboy Industries. I was learning about it in high school, oh, just high school, yeah. theology classes. Yeah. So it's like, you know, uh, one weekend we're going to Homeboy Industries. The next week in class, we're learning about Oscar Romero and really like liberation theology. And all of this like really seemed to me, it was like, well, this makes sense, right? Like this yeah. is gospel, right? Like if we're thinking about Jesus and who, like, I like to phrase this for kids now, students I work with, like, Jesus was a brown Jewish immigrant who was killed by state sanctioned violence. Like when we think about who Jesus was and who Jesus would be standing with, um, I think hearing the story in the plight of Salvadorans and to know the story of Oscar Romero and the martyrs, um, it really had a big impact on me. And I went my senior year, San Salvador. And wow. yeah, I mean, that, that's just like incredible opportunities. And it wasn't. Yeah to go and do service and I, I'm really grateful that I think a lot of times um you know growing up in a church it's like okay we're gonna go we're gonna build something we're gonna do something and really the Jesuit idea our motto is forming people with and for others mm -hmm. and I really I love that because I wasn't there to build I wasn't there to fix any political problems I was 17 and I was there to be and I was there to listen and learn Mm. and um which is just a beautiful gift and like having people welcome you into their homes so that you can learn more about a culture and a people it was really powerful um mm. I later went to Loyola Marymount University so I went back and eventually taught at Homeboy Industries because it's right down the road um I had a lot of business major friends who were like we've got this grant to do uh financial literacy for the homies and I was like well, do you know how to teach? So I, I was studying elementary education in Spanish. So I was always really interested in in what education could look like in non-traditional settings. So I was always in I I don't know that I ever saw my lifetime career as a classroom teacher. And I love I like love the classroom so much and I miss it. But, um, you know, being able to be with the homies on a regular basis during my senior year, studying abroad in Argentina and again, like really understanding like in a semester, I was where I worked in schools um, and eventually went back to run the program. And it's a study abroad program that no longer exists, but it was with the intentionality of accompanying people. So mm -hmm. when I was a student, I was working in a school twice a week, trying to teach English, trying to accompany um, teachers and whatever they asked me to do, um, mostly just laughing with third graders. And as an adult, when I went back, uh, I was working with migrant women who had uh, migrant indigenous women who had come from Bolivia and Peru. And so we're relocating to Argentina. So I feel really blessed to have always been in faith based communities. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that that's necessarily like it just feels like it happens. <laughs> and yeah. I just like, one always connected to the other. Um, the doors just were, were just like opened up to you. You walked into them yes. without yeah. a specific like goal or like objective. No. Like I'm just going to take advantage of these opportunities. Exactly. And I think, you know, all of them were Jesuit missioned. And so a lot when uh, when you look at Jesuit schools, when especially like our middle schools and our high schools, um, there are five outcomes, learning outcomes. So the graduate at graduation, and one of them is committed to justice. So it's like, I think when you have that ingrained in you at 14, for me, I just looked for it. Like, and the doors, they did, they just kept opening. So I was really fortunate after graduating from LMU to be able to spend a year in Argentina. And then 
decided that I was going to move back to the United States. And that's where DEI started for me. So I got a fellowship in Baltimore the year after Freddie Gray was murdered Mm. and uh, at a teeny tiny DEI consulting firm. And it was right in the fall um, during the 2016 election season. So to say it was like contentious to be near the Capitol is an understatement, but And it was a hard time for the city of Baltimore that had seen a really big uprising the year before um, after a lot of pain from losing Freddie Gray. And uh, I knew I wanted to do more because I was like I was a secretary and trying to just help run this tiny this tiny nonprofit. And I really wanted to return to the classroom. I think that that was something that I was craving. I knew that I could watch my boss and and it was one of the only non-faith-based communities that i've been in yeah and it, was hard. it was hard i felt like something was was missing i felt like a mm. spirituality of it was missing i feel like a groundedness was missing um and yeah it was actually one of the most challenging jobs that i had because i think we were just trying to keep people okay and there was nothing to ground nothing to ground to that no like greater being greater good um and it was just a painful time in Baltimore. So I eventually uh, was going to take a job back at my alma mater. And I had a few months in between. So I moved to the border again to work with, uh, I know, um, I worked with uh, the Scalabrinis because we used to go in college. So I was working in Tijuana with in a home where men were either had been recently deported or were about to cross the border. Mm. And I think that was just a really humbling experience before I started teaching 16 year olds, because I just remember, you know, folks are letting you into their stories and their pain. And I knew I wanted to do something because it was early on in the Trump in the Trump presidency. And he was really um, sharing some really harmful rhetoric towards immigrants and refugees. Actually, I mean, he did his whole four years, but really during that time, especially. And, you know, being able to um be there and accompany folks with whatever their next step on their journey was it was one of the harder jobs that I've ever had you know and I think high schoolers middle schoolers like that's a walk in the cake compared to this like these are some really heart heavy stories of um kidnappings or trying to cross again or um you know people's deportation stories are not are not light and so it's interesting. Like I've always just ended up in this realm of social justice and church and what that, what that means and what that looks like. And so I was asked to, and meanwhile, I have no background in theology. Like Mm -hmm. I, I really want to name that, like, because I think it's, it's funny how. But you went, you went to a Jesuit college, right? Yeah. what what, What was your degree in? Elementary education and elementary Spanish. education. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I was originally a business major. Like I really was not, um, you know, I was grounded to the social justiceness of it all. And yeah, I went back to my alma mater and they were like, can you teach theology? <laughs> I was uh-huh. like, uh, my degree's in Spanish. Like, are you sure that you want me to, are you sure? Like, am I really the right person? And I remember my principal looking at me and he's like, there's no one else who could speak social justice. He's like, we have theologians. But like when we're talking about ethics and social justice, like you can learn the theology of this. Yeah. So it it was a really interesting, um, also a humbling experience, I think, to just learn alongside as I'm trying to teach 
And in your first few years of teaching, they're always hard. And, um, and, you, but, and you're, so you're teaching college students, high school students, Oh, high school. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So I was with juniors in high school. And so I was teaching about two or three classes and then I was taking students on immersion trips. So the same trips that had really impacted me to like East LA, I was taking students on. So we would do trips to East Los Angeles, um, in the Coachella Valley where I'm from. Um, South Central Los Angeles, and then eventually Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. So we had it was like a very fun job because and again, it was like what I was gravitating towards when I was in Baltimore. It was that I loved seeing people learn in non-traditional ways. Like I thought that, you know, when when you're with when you're with other schools or when you're out in the field learning about agriculture or when you're learning about environmental injustices. I can explain those in a classroom as best as I can. And like, that's why I always tried to bring in story as much as I could, but there's nothing that's going to be the real hands-on experience. Right. Um, um, I was always the quasi DEI person that the school didn't like, wasn't able to afford a DEI person. So they would look to me to kind of, you know, how can we do this PD? What data do we need? Um, and it really it really, really propelled me to want to go back to school and get a graduate degree. And so eventually I moved up to the Bay Area and uh, worked at a Jesuit middle school, teaching Spanish and doing parent engagement in um, almost 100% Latinx community in San Jose. And they were the best. And I, so I was with them as the pandemic hit, which is just a hard place to be with middle schoolers on Zoom. But Um, I was with them and getting a degree in international and multicultural education at the University of San Francisco. And uh, I knew I wanted to study more into the lens of DEI. And so happened to be taking classes on like critical race theory, whiteness, power and privilege, again, at a Jesuit institution. And and what can that, you know, what do those lenses offer educational spaces? So my research, my, my thesis is about how students from Jesuit middle schools and Jesuit middle schools tend to be predominantly 100% BIPOC students Mm -hmm. um, for lower income students as well. And so I really wanted to know what their transition was like from 100% BIPOC school to a predominantly white high school. That was their Mm -hmm. usual models was that they would go from a middle school um, that was really small and where we offered a lot of resources to then big high schools, big Catholic high schools in the area. So it was a really humbling experience, I think, to be witness to those stories of those high school students. Most of them were seniors at the time. It was uh, spring 2021. So, you know, they'd been doing a lot of Zoom learning. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It was just I think it was so meaningful. Then as I moved up to Oregon, my husband is from Oregon. So we wanted we knew we wanted to relocate and be able to be somewhere where we could be more easily outside where I wasn't. So I was living in downtown San Jose. So it was a very landlocked, very concrete. And uh, yeah, I wanted to make a change to be closer to some family and the right job opened up at the right time. And I didn't know if I was going to be staying in schools. I knew I wanted to be doing DEI work. And uh, right before the school year started, the DEI director moved to another Catholic high school. And I still work really closely with her. And Again, I mean, as a lot of things that have happened in my life, like the door just opened up and it was like, yeah. okay, let's. <laughs> let's Melissa, do- right? Melissa yeah. Lowry? Yeah, yeah Melissa she, Lowry. I, I literally just had a conversation with her this oh, week too. Yeah, good. to be on the I podcast. So. 
Yeah, you, you you all will be together. Oh, great! <laughs> little yeah, mini, little sure mini so. mini series on DEI Catholic uh, oh, workers. Okay. <laughs> I'm in good um, company then. She's great. Yeah, for sure. Um, oh man, there's so much there, but there's like one thing that kind of caught my attention that I think uh resonated with me because it connects to why I started this podcast, right? And you know, you said how something was missing when you worked in that non-faith setting, right? Mm. Um, and I relate to that because, I mean, I've been the opposite of you where like most of my um, educational and professional uh, career has been in secular settings, mm -hmm. right? Um, the work that I, the job that I have now is my first experience being in a, in a faith-based setting. Um, but like you, I also felt like something, I, I always felt like something was missing. Like I wasn't totally content or I felt limited. And mm -hmm. I always like to say that, like, like I have one, one hand tied behind my back. Right. Yeah. Cause I couldn't bring in the spiritual aspect. Right. And I think it's important, you know, um, because I, I think about, you know, the black lives matter movement and all these other social justice movements that have sprung up over, you know, the past decade or more um that are are not so faith centered right sure. um maybe spiritual right um yeah. loosely spiritual um so like can you tease that out a little bit like the importance of having that grounding when you're doing this kind of work yeah i mean i think for me like if i look at catholic social teaching you know and i look at the seven principles of that and like I think being able to name like all humans have inherent dignity, you know, like to me, it's like, that is the black lives matter movement. When I think mm -hmm. about like preferential option for the poor and vulnerable, that is saying BIPOC, right. It's not just saying people of color, right. It's centering black and indigenous and then people of color. Like, I think that there's a lot of overlap actually. And I think that there's, um, I also know that the church has done some harm, right. So you always have to wrestle with like histories of peoples and how do they, impact today's narrative and how do they impact today's society so i feel like it's a constant wrestling of what are we called to do like who were who would jesus be in present day and who would he be with and it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have been here in portland during the summer 2020 protests right yeah and i i, I look thank you for um making those connections right because that, that when i started this job that's what i found myself doing because you know people would be questioning like why are you supporting this cause or this organization by saying these words and i'm like hold on what like like just think about <laughs> yeah this is catholic social teaching like yeah. prioritizing you know the, the the most oppressed in our community yeah. you know right. um and uh, unfortunately um far too many people aren't aware of the, the the seven themes of catholic social teaching which is kind of why, why i started this podcast as well okay. um but the other question i wanted to ask you was like you know in the spirit of what you just said like what is god calling you to do and also the the opening prayer that you that you started right do something and do it well like what is what ha in in this span of your your life and your career, what is that particular calling that you felt um, uh, God gave you in terms of like, okay, I, I can't do it all, but here's the one thing that I can do. You know, I think I really wanted to be the teacher that I didn't have. Um, you know, I think overwhelmingly education is a really white space. And so I'm biracial. Uh, my dad is Latino. My mom is white. And so really having adults in my life who talked to, who would talk about the complexity of race and being multiracial. Like I never saw that. So for me, it really felt like a calling of, I want to be the teacher I never had. And so what does that look like? And, you know, it looked one way in the classroom where we were doing a lot of um, 
things that would lean would lean on culture. I think about, you know, as we enter into Black History Month, I used to do huge lessons about like Afro-Latinx identity when I was teaching middle school. And but now as now as an adult or now as and I'm in my next school, I really love being able to be a DEI director and being able to have hard conversations with kids so that they know that they can lean into the complexity of identity, right? And that it's not something to be afraid of as they might've seen or heard in their news <laughs> that they that their parents listen to. Um, and so it's really a calling also to support students who, who come to Jesuit and who come fr- with different socioeconomic backgrounds, different sexualities, different religions, different gender identities. I think for me, it's like, I want to create an office where kids always feel at home, no matter their identity. Um, and they can come in if they need anything at all. Yeah. And then earlier you were saying how, um, you know, you were, uh, as you were starting your your career, right, um, you found yourself in the midst of like some really, you know, heart-wrenching um, struggles in our society, right? You mentioned the the immigration stuff, you know, during the um, Trump administration, the family separation, right, and the ongoing yeah. crisis at the border. Um, the uh, um, did you say Freddie Gray or who, who yeah. was it? Yeah, Freddie Gray, Gray, right? And then you know George Floyd, yeah. the pandemic, right? And being somebody that's um, worked predominantly in in faith based settings, especially in an Ignatius uh, Jesuit institutions, what are some of those spiritual practices that have helped you kind of? um stay afloat right and 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 not lose hope and continue with, with with the work yeah i mean i think i'm still figuring that out you know i think that that's a journey in a, of itself but i think for me it was actually knowing that there are there's like dei directors at almost every jesuit high school across the country and there's a weekly call on tuesday mornings at 9 a.m and wow. i know like i think the spiritual practice of like coming together and just gathering through the pandemic and like through now um felt like a weekly ritual of coming home and you know to have other people who are going through similar challenges in their schools and your cities and other BIPOC folks in a lot of predominantly white spaces like that that was a truly a gift um and I know that's not necessarily like a spiritual practice but it almost felt like a sort of breaking bread yeah no, I would call that a spiritual practice, right? Gathering as community. I mean, that's what we do at mass, right? Coming together, <laughs> coming together. Um, uh, so let's talk a little bit about what DEI uh, work looks like in faith-based settings and specifically in Jesuit settings, um, you know, given that, you know, you work at a Jesuit institution here at Jesuit High School in, in Oregon, um, and you've, you've, been in different spaces like that. And like you said, you're connected with the this national network of DEI um, workers. So talk about a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a huge opportunity for students to lean into the work. So uh, DEI has a few different levels at Jesuit. So um, we've got some good board formation for our family or for our for our board members. We, we support our families. So we'll do um, We've got like a Padres Unidos group. So really trying to support our Spanish speaking families and giving them the resources that they need in Spanish. Um, we just most recently had um, an Our Lady of Guadalupe mass in the evening, bilingual with lots of, you know, mama came with her comal for tacos. Like it was a really good, it was a really good breaking of bread. And for faculty that can look like PD, that can look like right now we're building a DEI framework. And so for faculty, we wanted to, 
operationalize, you know, the question, the motto that all Jesuit schools have is forming people with and for others. And it's like, we don't just think that our students get there by osmosis, you know, that just because they're on campus and they're around some nice people that all of a sudden they have this, this shift of like service and advocacy. It's like, so how do we teach that to them? So we've been building a framework with teachers to operationalize um, the skills of listen, learn, reflect, and act, which is Ignatian pedagogy for teaching. And so how do we teach our students to begin as active listeners? How do we teach them to learn more about themselves and others and their greater community? How can we get them to look at systems of injustice in class? And then I think like the biggest blessing that I've had being able to work with students and with teachers this past year is really getting our community to be thinking about advocacy work. You know, it's not, I think for our students, like it's not just enough if they can name the injustice. It's not enough if they go out and do immersion trips. Like what are you creating a lifestyle where you're advocating for others? And so I've been really moved um, to work with students. I think that they, they've called on me a few times when they're like, we need to get this done now. (laughs) So we'll call Ms. Montes. And um, last year, you know, after the shooting at Uvalde, we had, we had a, a walkout. Students emailed me late in the afternoon. They're like, we're doing a walkout tomorrow. Like, what do we need to do? (laughs) What do we need to do? Here's the script. And I was like, your script looks great, but you have to do advocacy for it. So let's, you know, at the end of it, they had a QR code from Ignatian Solidarity Network, which is a huge social justice and Catholic organization that a lot of us Jesuit schools rely on to supply, um, you know, maybe scripts for a phone call that students can make for their legislatures, or can they sign on to a petition? And it's really nice because we get to lean on our Catholicity and our Ignatian community and do some good work. So. It was really powerful to have students, you know, walk out after a really hard week. I think all of us, I mean, every time that there's a school shooting, it just, it hits students and teachers again and again, and it's painful. And to be able to march out in solidarity in orange, which is the color against gun violence, and then to be signing petitions, asking for change, it felt like a really meaningful move. So I'm I'm grateful for the different communities across the country that allow DEI and social justice work to live in a faith-based way. Yeah. Um I I you mentioned advocacy, right? And you know the importance of uh operationalizing the the mission at Jesuit institutions, you know, th- the framework of listening, learning, reflecting and acting and and that makes me think of uh you know community organizing. Yeah. Right. And I know that you've had some uh, some experience with with doing that as well or preparing materials and things like that um, to help that kind of work. And like we're throwing out a lot of words here, which is part of the reason why um, I also have a, a word of the day segment at the big be- uh, at the beginning of the episode, um, because I realized social justice language can have so much verbiage sure. that that can be confusing right and so like you're talking about advocacy you're talking about dei and i'm throwing in organizing but anyways yeah. like talk about your your work with with organizing and and you know if you feel comfortable teasing out the, the difference between you know doing advocacy and organizing yeah so um it's interesting the way that it came about but basically when you look at the country there are four different provinces for jesuit regions so we're in the west coast province so um, there will be like usually gatherings of folks in between Alaska to Arizona and everywhere in between. So we tend to know each other really well. And somebody at our province level um, now has the position of provincial assistant for justice and ecology. But Annie she Fox? Was, 
Annie Fox. Yeah. Well, I'm talking to literally an oh. hour to. Yeah. Oh, great. Tell her I say hello. Yeah. So this is a lot of the work that Annie Fox did. Um, and so in she was meeting with all of these different Jesuit um, and not just schools, but parishes and different um, Jesuit affiliate organizations. So like in L.A., we have L.A. Voice and they are very strictly like an organizing. Um, but they were founded by Jesuits. So. um. She gathered people from Alaska to Arizona, and we would meet once a month in our region. So back then I was in San Jose, and so I was the coordinator for my school. And as a region, we had to figure out, uh, well, we were learning community organizing tactics, essentially. And and it really rests on like Ignatian spirituality. Like, how do we be more present to others? How do we listen better? And how do then we you know, we flex our Jesuit muscle. How then do we move together as this big region? So um, it was really powerful to be able to, we started this in January, 2020, we moved to Zoom. And when, when we were hit with June, 2020, we knew as a whole region, like we need to be doing work for racial equity. We Mm. need to be working um, towards an anti-racist society and an anti-racist church. And so feeling really blessed to have been brought in with, and again, I wasn't doing formal DEI work, but being brought in by people who were doing formal DEI work. And we wrote this website called Collaborative Organizing for Racial Equity. So it's a tool for people to be able to use. So, you know, if you feel overwhelmed in listening to this and you're like, what does BIPOC mean? And like, what are norms? And what, you know, I think if you're like, I don't know where to start, that's really what this toolkit was for, was to give um, folks in faith-based spaces it can be used in secular spaces as well, but like, where do you start? What's some key terminology you need to know? And what I really love about it is that it's a reminder that the work is never done, right? Like I like to think of anti-racism work as lifelong incomplete work. Like it is a moving target because mm-hmm. we're trying, if you're, if you're shooting for an anti-racist society, then that's a society where all systems of inequity are broken down, right? It does. It's not just race, right? It's, race and gender and you know it becomes all of these ands Mm -hmm. so um it's a good place to start and we talk about having resources if you're at the beginning of your journey maybe if you're a little more advanced in your journey if you're really wanting to deepen your journey there's resources for teachers there's uh, resources for faith-based um prayer and so uh that was a really meaningful way to spend summer of 2020 and we ended up building a it was online for two years. It's going to be in person this year. So we're really excited. But we we decided that if we wanted to move our Jesuit institutions forward, then we needed to be teaching students community organizing skills. So we taught students about what is what is a one to one, you know, which is really when you're getting to know one person and getting to know um, maybe the communities that they're a part of. Um, what are research meetings? What are, um, how can you talk to your legislatures? And again, like, these are just things that I wished I had had in, in high school. I knew that I was introduced to social justice, but being able to say, no, we together as the Jesuit high schools in California are going to go to Sacramento and ask for X in March. Like that's a, that's a huge difference, um, in the way that we're seeing education. Yeah. Because like, to your point, you know, like we were saying earlier, you know, social justice, when we talk about it, it sounds so theoretical, right? Um, especially when you bring in the faith piece, the spiritual piece with Catholic social teaching. Um, but it's like, okay, well, how do we do it? And yeah. advocacy, 
organizing tactics, those are all like the tools for yes. actually realizing these principles and values. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I so, love so so are you teaching organizing to students at Jesuit? Um, we were in the last two summers. We put it on pause so we could regroup and do it live um, this summer. So we're going to be up near Seattle with other Seattle Catholic schools. So not just Jesuit and then Jesuit schools across Oregon, California. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, so it's more like a, like a conference style. It's not like in the exactly. classroom, like teachers. No, it's like a summit. Um, But students at Jesuit high school, I get to run social justice week. Um, So we have this year, students voted on a theme. So we're doing climate justice this year. And we've got a youth organizer coming in. I mean, I'm really grateful to have the lens of advocacy and organizing because we've got a youth organizer coming in to talk about her work in the climate justice world. Um, Sophia Kiani, who's an Iranian American who... She based, she's got a TED talk and is on Forbes 30 under 30. She's dope. And uh, she's got this nonprofit for, to empower students to translate chi- climate change documents because most climate change documents are only in the top eight languages spoken in the mm. world. And she realized that her family in Iran didn't have documents in Farsi. So we've got a lot of multilingual kids. So I'm like, let's, let's do this. Um, meanwhile, we'll have student presentations on anything from like ocean acidification to like, how could you be recycling more thoughtfully in your home? Um, so that's like day one. We move to systems. I really want kids to understand when they're looking at social justice issues. I think sometimes they can seem so big and so luminous. And where do you start? And so for students to be able to see, I can do daily changes in my habits to then let me look at systems of injustice. So then our third day is advocacy. So the goal is to have, we've got 1300 kids. So about another 200 adults on campus. So the goal is 1500 actions in one hour. So we'll have students um, doing calling campaigns, uh, letter writing campaigns. I know one of the um, organizers that we're working with is from the Laudato Si movement, and she's going to have students write to Jesuit universities to ask them to divest. So there's some cool things going on. And I think it's the second year that we've done it this way. So we're trying to change a culture. And maybe not every student will understand, but I'm really hoping that students can start to grasp um, their call to put their faith into action and to, yeah, use their voice in a meaningful way. What do you think about teaching advocacy organizing uh, at younger levels, like middle school, elementary? Yeah. Oh, I did. Well, yeah, I did that when I was teaching in um, in San Jose. So I think we would talk about, um, you know, sometimes we would do letter writing campaigns. Sometimes we would do if there were special projects going on. I think that these are important skills, life skills, like being able to listen to somebody, being able to research a topic that you're passionate about. Like those aren't, those aren't necessarily like have to be social justice, you know, right. but, but when they can lend themselves to be, um, it can create some, some really meaningful change. But yeah, I think, I think the hard thing with middle schoolers is they're so awkward in the most yeah. wonderful, <laughs> wonderful way. Um, so it's a little hard for them to um, really get involved with advocacy work. And it's hard even with with uh, students in high school because they can't vote. But I think I'm I'm really moved when middle school students and high school students want to do things like reminders to get out the vote and um you know, I've seen bilingual voting guides and, you know, that's the future of our country. And I'm glad to give them the tools to be able to think bigger and more critically. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I work at a parish 
right and um doing social justice work um and kind of the one of the struggles that i have is trying to reach out to to the youth right um in in the parish or like around the parish but um and we have all these catholic schools you know i mean we have a catholic school directly on our campus uh and and then these high schools right uh i'm curious how um how if at all right uh that connection between catholic high schools and parishes um are are made you know um by partnering together on different social justice in initiatives or efforts like if can you speak a little bit about that yeah and i don't know that i've got a great answer for that because you know i'm thinking about like the initiatives that we're trying to do with 1300 like i would love to be able to invite more kids in but it's hurting cats already <laughs> and yeah. it's like trying to move so many bodies at once um i think the hard thing is too is like if kids had um strong parish lives. I think, I think that this, this is across the board, like across the nation is what I've heard. Um, once they go to Catholic high school, it, it tends to move away from that. And I don't, yeah. I don't know that I have a good answer. I wish that there was more partnerships. And what we've been seeing here in Portland is we've been trying to bring students together more often than not to do, but it's again, it's across high schools here. So it's not necessarily parishes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh something that I'm constantly thinking about um and discerning about. What about with other non-Catholic high schools? Do you ever collaborate on uh advocacy efforts with with others, you know, teens that aren't from a Catholic yeah, school? I mean, sometimes um I mean our our student council, I know they just went to Mountainside yesterday. So they try to collaborate on stuff like that. Again, it's almost just like if it's just me and I'm new to Portland, like I want to be doing more than that and I like trying to figure out what the best avenues are for that when it is really faith-based, you know, it's like, I think about our advocacy day and our speakers from Ignatian solidarity network, who's talking about faith-based organizing. So I also know that that's like a sticky subject. Right. For so um, it's a bit easier to, to invite other Catholic high schools into the mix. Yeah. What about pushback? What kind of pu pushback have you gotten? <laughs> Though I, I I wonder, I'm like, well, I mean, you've worked in all these Jesuits spaces that, you know, center justice. Like maybe you haven't gotten pushback. I don't know. But I know I've gotten plenty of pushback. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it was really, and folks saw this across the board, across the country last year with uh, talking about critical race theory and not really knowing what critical race theory was. So um it's very interesting parents accusing me of teaching critical race theory. I'm not in the classroom. Um, I would love to be, I'd love to teach an ethnic studies class or something in the future, but you know, I, I think about, I took a critical race theory class at USF in grad school, you know, in my mid twenties, like we have some really brilliant students who might be able to grasp like the basic tenets, but they're not doing deep dives um, into these works. What I do tell families is that, you know, when they come and they're like, you do that, you know, it's very like finger pointing, blaming every once in a while. Um, but it was like, it was that there was some finger pointing that my office taught critical race theory and, you know, wanting to change the mask mandate. It's like, well, the mask mandate is illegal. Like we, <laughs> I'm not going to challenge the governor on this. Um, and if you mean that, you know, one of the tenets of critical race theory is that race and racism are real. So. I do teach that, right? And our teachers teach that. And, and that is true, right? And and our Catholic bishops are calling us to know this, right? right. And to, to wrestle with this. So 
Um, that's been the biggest, the biggest pushback. Mm. Uh, that that has been uh, what has made me lose um, sleep at night. What has uh, got my thin, my skin to be thicker. It is. Um, mm. I think people not understanding that, like, for me, DEI work has meant doing programming for our first generation students, figuring out how to support our LGBTQIA students, you know, running different, like I'm a moderator for the young women of color club. Like we're planning lunar new year celebrations. Like, and yes, there is training above that, uh, for other constituents on campus. But I think sometimes that people don't know what they're talking about and will use talking points that they see on TV and online. Um, and I wish then that they had done the research into Jesuit institutions where we're called to do the work for justice. But that's been the biggest and the most hard pushback. And I'm grateful to have been in a community that we listened to the parents and, um, and luckily it stopped, but I know that there are other schools across the country where I think they're still still dealing, they're still dealing with it. They are. Um, I mean, I know you can, this could, this is a a whole semester's course, right? But I think this is an important, take, uh, take advantage of, uh, you know, that you brought up the critical race theory, like in layman's terms, what what, just generally, you already mentioned some of the tenants, like what, what is it just so like people kind of have somewhat of a clearer understanding of of what that, what it is. Yeah. And you know what, there's a great, um, maybe we can link it in the notes or something, but the great video, um, from America magazine which talks about like the tenets of critical race theory and and critical theory. So essentially uh, critical theory came about with like critiquing society. So realizing that there are inequities um, in our societies and trying to figure out what that comes from. So critical race theory is a tenant. (laughs) It's like, it comes from that. And it also came from critical legal studies. So it was a lot of lawyers who were recognizing that in the early days of the U S our laws were unjust towards BIPOC communities. And so that's where it comes from. And so now a lot of the research that I did, you know, you can see how there are inequities in uh, education systems in housing. And I mean, it's kind of like once you open the floodgates of racism, you realize that it's a system that we've all been swimming in and it's been taught and learned for generations of people. So it's, it's a, critical way of thinking about race. So really questioning the way that we um, go about in our day to day, but also in systems and really trying to get at how does how is racism used as a tactic for power? Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's really helpful. Um, So we've talked a lot about a lot of things (laughs) and I'm really excited to listen to our conversation again so I can kind of tease these things out. lots of words. Um, and you know, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because, you know, like you, I, I, I've experienced pushback and I started the day after George Floyd's murder. Um, you know, so, um, I was kind of dealing a lot with the, you know, just saying black lives matter, you know, the associations that came up for people and the fear, right. The anxiety that, that surprised me, right. That it, I was like, well, you're seeing this in out in the broader society and it's also happening in the church. Like that was kind of my first experience living that, you know? And so the message I'm always trying to get across is like, why should Catholics care about social justice? And like, I think more specifically to you, like, how would you answer that? Like, how, why, why should we care about all this DEI, advocacy, organizing, you know, uh, 
all this like why why is catholic why is it personally uh important for you as a catholic and 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 maybe that can kind of help shed light on why other catholics should care about this stuff yeah i mean for me i just i go back to the gospels and like thinking about you know I love the image of Jesus, like going in to the temple and flipping tables when he was angry and seeing injustice. Like he wasn't a person who sat idly by and watched injustice and hurt continue. Right. Like he was somebody who spoke out. And so I, I like that image um, of like an angry, of an angry Jesus as somebody who wasn't willing to put up with the status quo um, and was looking for more community and belonging and healing. And so for me, like that is the basis of Catholicism. Like that is the gospel in action. And so how can we, how can we think about living a life more like the person that we, that we look to in church? I love it. I love it. Well, anything else, Amanda, before we kind of wrap up here with a prayer? I don't think so. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I just want to say thank you for, for sharing your experiences, your stories. Um, and yeah, I'm just excited to, to meet you and hopefully one day we'll meet in person. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so I'll close this with a quick little prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we uh, thank you for this amazing conversation, uh, for gathering as a community of uh, of Catholics and, you know, people doing this work of social justice. I'm thinking about Oscar, St. Oscar Romero right now and asking for his intercession as we continue to do this work in, in our Catholic institutions and schools and parishes help us lord um become more like you right um peacemakers people who who work for justice and healing and community uh thank you for for amanda and i ask you that you just bless the work that she continues to do at jesuit and um and that much much fruit can bear from that for herself but also the the youth that she works with so we ask this to Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Well, thank you, Amanda. And we'll hopefully talk soon. Yes. Yeah. Bye. Bye. heard Amanda's story, it's time to connect this to our Catholic social teaching to see what new insights we can gain. Amanda had so many rich experiences and stories to share with us that shed light on what it looks like to live a faith that does justice. In my opinion, she truly embodies and puts into practice in her personal and professional life all the principles of Catholic social teaching. You can really see how these values function as a framework and lens for understanding the world as it is today versus the world as it should be, according to the Gospels in our faith. I could spend a half hour or more connecting her story to all these themes. However, for the sake of time, I'm going to highlight just one of these themes of Catholic social teaching we can see in her story, and that's the theme of family, community, and participation. She applies and teaches the principle with the Padres Unidos group and the other parent affinity groups she coordinates, giving them an avenue for being involved with their kids' lives and the Jesuit community. Moreover, she lives out this theme with the students when she facilitates opportunities for them to experience 
different forms of advocacy, such as phone calling, letter writing, reminding folks to go out and vote even when they themselves can't vote yet. I really appreciated how she reminds the students she works with, okay, it's great you are walking out and wearing orange to protest gun violence, but what else are you doing? What else are you going to do to advocate for more just policies and laws that actually address this issue and change it in a significant way? In other words, symbolic acts are not enough. We got to go at the root of these issues and work to transform systems and structures. She provides students with a roadmap for participating in society by following an intentional process of listening, learning, reflecting, and then acting. Too often we want to jump straight to action, but when we skip these other steps, our actions sometimes end up doing more harm than good. In short, whether it's with staff, parents, or students, Amanda models and teaches how to be, as the Jesuits say, men and women for and with others. She reminds us of the right and responsibility of being a faithful, virtuous, and active citizen in society, regardless of your age. To wrap up, here are a few relevant excerpts from the U.S. Bishop's document on forming consciences for faithful citizenship. In the Catholic tradition, responsible citizenship is a virtue and participation in political life is a moral obligation. This obligation is rooted in our baptismal commitment to follow Jesus Christ and to bear Christian witness in all we do. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church reminds us, it is necessary that all participate, each according to his position and role, and role in promoting the common good. This obligation is inherent in the dignity of the human person. As far as possible, citizens should take an active part in public life. As the Holy Father also taught in Deus Caritas Est, the direct duty to work for a just ordering of society is proper to the lay faithful. Forming their consciences in accord with Catholic teaching, Catholic lay women and men can become actively involved, running for office, working within political parties, communicating their concerns and positions to elected officials, and joining diocesan social mission or advocacy networks, state Catholic conference initiatives, community organizations, and other efforts to apply authentic moral teaching in public square. Even those who cannot vote have the right to have their voices heard on issues that affect their lives and the common good. Alright, that's a wrap for this episode of Reclaiming Social Justice. If you like the content, don't forget to share it and subscribe to the podcast. Remember, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for me, you can reach me at reclaimingsj at gmail.com. You can let me know what you thought about this episode specifically or what you think about the podcast in general by filling out the short feedback form at the bottom of this show notes. Again, my name is Danny. Thank you for tuning in, and I will see you next time for another episode of Reclaiming Social Justice.